What do we do when we meet people for the first time? You know, we engage in a series of questions, don't we? It's almost like a dance. And in your name, where are you from? What do you do? Maybe we'll ask about credentials, depending on, you know, if they're in the same field we are, whatever titles, doctor, Mr. Is it Ms., professor, CEO. We're gathering information. And without even being aware of it, we're ranking according to status. And we're being ranked. Where does this person fit? How important are they? How do I compare? Now, we don't do this really consciously most of the time, but that's sort of what's going on. When people meet me and ask what I do, depending on how I answer, I can predict the next question. Invariably, it's how big is your church? The answer is not just about numerical information, right? It's, it communicates to the questioner my importance. How significant is your ministry? How much influence do you have? <laughs> we do these things without even being aware most of the time, right? Well, Jesus' disciples were doing this, and they were aware. They were openly discussing their relative status among themselves. They were arguing. Each one putting himself above the other in terms of their status in the kingdom of God. Who's the greatest? Got to be me, right? Over these weeks, the last few weeks, the lectionary has been leading us to consider marks of healthy community, marks of healthy church, a Christian community. At least that's the lens we've been using. And it comes at a much-needed time for us. We continue to be challenged by a global pandemic that we thought we had under control, only to see things deteriorate. There's division in our society, polarizing elements driving us further and further apart. And these things threaten the church as well. If we're not careful to let love lead, to embrace our unity in Christ, to guard our life together so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in our broken world. We've already talked about community as the place that God creates and sustains. Remember there was a sermon about he feeds us like he fed the prophet in the, in the wilderness. We took a look at what it means to make a commitment, to live with integrity, to know mercy, what proper speech is. And today Jesus takes on our concern with status and tells us that we must become servants those who are willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. In this section of Mark's Gospel, Jesus is telling his disciples three times that he will suffer and die. But he just can't get their attention. They don't get it. We remember Peter's creedal statement, declaration last week, right? But then he turned around and totally missed what it was for Jesus to be the Messiah. I mean, he got the first part right, totally flunked the second exam. But it wasn't only Peter. All of Jesus' followers struggled with this. It made no sense based on what they had been taught about the Messiah and the kingdom that Messiah would establish. Suffering, death, humiliation, they were not part of it. I think it's a good lesson for us not to think we always understand what God is doing. We like to write our theologies in permanent ink, don't we? have them engraved in bronze. And, and I think we believe sometimes that 2,000 years of development of Christian thought have given us a place now where we can judge all the other eras. 
and also all the Christians that disagree with us. We're still followers. We don't see everything clearly. I have great respect for professional theologians. We have a church full of them. <laughs> and it's a great thing. It's a great blessing. But I tell you what, I, I, I have respect for those that are willing to say about certain things, I don't know. I don't know. So Jesus is teaching them, right? And this teaching of his coming death is so central to his mission that he takes them to a private place where they won't be disturbed by the crowds. I mean, there's a lot going on in these pages, right? There's the feeding of the 4,000. There's, there's healings. There's the transfiguration. There's the, all the arguments with the Pharisees. All important and necessary things. But the teaching of the cross and the resurrection was central. And it still is. Have you ever wondered why in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is always telling people to be quiet? You notice that? Yeah. Oh, you were healed. Shh, don't tell anybody. I think you're the Messiah. Shh, okay, don't tell anybody about that. It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? I think part of the answer is because his life and mission could only be properly understood against his death on the cross and the resurrection that followed. I mean, if the disciples couldn't get it right, what would all of Israel do? No, Jesus must teach his followers what is coming, that he will be turned over to those that will kill him, and that after three days he will rise from the dead. But still, the disciples continue on, unfazed by this. They're arguing about who's the greatest among them. They're asserting their status. And, and it's interesting, they've picked up enough of Jesus' teaching to know that probably he wouldn't like it, so they just keep quiet about it. But he knows. The Lord knows. And he gives them a lesson on status that will shock them. And it will turn their values upside down. So they're in a house in Capernaum. Maybe it was Peter and Andrew's house. Who knows? And Jesus sits down. It's the posture of the teacher. He's going to teach them something that will just ring throughout all of, of Christian history. And we've heard it so many times that it's become like a bumper sticker sometimes for us. If you want to be first, you must be last, and you must be the servant of all. That is revolutionary. That is radical. And it's challenging just as much today as it, when it was first heard by the Twelve. We spend all of our lives building capital, don't we? Acquiring status, influence control, a certain place where we have identity. And, you know, that in and of itself is not wrong. And it's something actually God can use to reach people. But only if we're willing to live as those who do not cling to our diplomas and trophies for our significance. To be a servant is to have no status. Servants are not seen. They're not spoken to by the guests. Their functions to do to whatever is called for by the head of the household. And you know what? Usually they're not thanked either for what they do. It's a lowly role. And the downward journey to becoming a servant in our hearts and hands is one that we will be led on by the Spirit if we truly desire to follow Jesus. I mean, we're going there if we follow him. But it's not something that comes naturally to us. Not to me. Gordon MacDonald said this. He said, you can tell whether you're becoming a servant by how you act when people treat you like one. You can tell whether you are becoming a servant by how you act when people treat you like one. If you want to be first, you must be the very last and the servant of all. 
This isn't just a proverbial statement. It's, it's not some kind of noble posture. It's a reflection of what Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples all along, that he will be taken from them. In other words, he will lose control of his situation, and his life will be taken from him. It's the cross that calls us to servanthood. Our status as servants, the last of all, flows from the incarnation itself, from Jesus' humility, from his obedience to the Father, his emptying, his journey to the cross. And when we live as servants, that is, when we live without regard to status, but with sacrificial love for others, then we start to look like Jesus. Perfection, in a Christian sense, notes Kathleen Norris, means becoming mature enough to give ourselves to others. To give ourselves to others. To make his point, and to drive it home a little bit further, Jesus takes a child in his arms. And he basically says to them, this is me. This is me. When you welcome this child, you welcome me. And you know, we mostly get this wrong because we've romanticized childhood in our time. We see it as a time of innocence or cuteness or unlimited possibility, and it certainly can be those things. But not in Jesus' day and actually not for many in our world today. Jesus made his point by embracing the one in the household that had no status at all. Children had no place. They had no significance at all until they were older. They were not really persons. So it's amazing, actually, when you consider that, the children are so prominent in the gospel narratives. Jesus identifies with them, not because they're cute or innocent, but because no one else even sees them. Dr. Paul Offit is a professor of pediatrics and vaccinology. I didn't know there was a thing, but in our time we know this now, right? And he's at the University of Pennsylvania. He thought religion was actually harmful to children. And it was because of an experience that he had. In 1991, a measles epidemic swept through Philadelphia. Hundreds of children got sick. Nine died. And he was an attending physician at Children's Hospital at that time. What differentiated the measles-stricken patients from other sick kids was how unnecessary their suffering was. Two Philadelphia churches, whose schools educated hundreds of children, had refused vaccinations and refused medical care and in, that, in those communities, the disease took hold and it spread. And this incident was among a number of them that prompted Offit to write a book. He was going to write a book, and he was going to call it Bad Faith, How Religious Belief Undermines Modern Medicine. And being non-religious, he assumed that it would read like the other militant atheists out there. That's kind of what he was going for. Basically, that religion is illogical and possibly harmful. But then he started to read the Bible. And he explored the history of medicine, and he changed his mind. Jesus' advocacy for children moved him to tears. He concluded this, he wrote this, he said, independent of whether you believe in the existence of God, you have to be impressed with this man, Jesus of Nazareth. At the time of Jesus' life, he said, one historian said child abuse was the crying vice of the Roman Empire. Infanticide was common. Abandonment was common. And that's because children were property, no different than slaves. But Jesus stood up for children, cared about them when those around him typically did not. 
Offit now calls Christianity the single greatest breakthrough against child abuse in history. We don't always practice that. He notes that the first Christian emperor of Rome outlawed infanticide and also provided a nascent form of welfare so that poor families would not have to sell their children. See, when we welcome those like children who have no status in Jesus' name, we welcome him. When we embrace those who cannot defend themselves or speak for themselves because they have no status, we embrace him. The poor, the hungry, the refugee, the widow and the orphan, we know this from biblical categories, the stranger, the unborn, those neglected at the end of life, Jesus says, that's me, that's me. And if that's me, then that's you. If we're not bound up with concerns about status, then we're free to serve others, including those who truly have no status in the world. We're free to be open. We're free to give. We're free to love. We're free to offer comfort and support. We're free to be present. In Galatians, Paul says, you were called to freedom, so through love be servants of one another. This is a marker of healthy Christian community, that we serve one another in love, and also that we serve those beyond the perimeter of our community. Faith is receiving, but only so that we can give away what we receive. James calls it deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. So I ask a question. Where are you serving? How are you serving? Where are you finding the joy of being like Jesus, free of concerns around status, so that you can live openly in serving others? Now, at Redeemer, there are many ways to serve, many areas that need servants, actually. And if you go to the bulletin, near the back of the bulletin, uh, if I can find it, is ministry opportunities and leaders' context. And this isn't everything, but it's a place to start. It's, this is an invitation to serve. When we publish events in the bulletin or in the e-update, it's not just so, hey, look at everything we have going on. Those are invitations to serve. Say, hey, maybe you can plug in here, plug in there. If you're not already involved in serving others, then prayerfully choose one thing. Just start with one thing. Maybe that's to return and be present here in our worship. Maybe that's what you're called to offer as a gift. If you're not able to be here in person, then serve in one thing that you can do by distance. I mean, there's prayer and other things. If you participate online with our worship, but you live in another part of the country or the world, then find a place to serve where you are and do one thing. Jesus says, be like me, take last place, be the servant of all. Paul says, in love, be servants of one another. James says, don't make distinctions between people. That's status. Instead, fulfill the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. How big is your church? It's big enough. It's big enough to love. It's big enough to serve. It's big enough to advocate. It's big enough to care. It's big enough to heal. It's big enough to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's big enough to bring life. I want to tell you a story at the end here. Leo Tolstoy wrote it, so I'm not going to take credit for it. It's called Two Old Men. 
It tells the story of Ephraim and Elisha, who decide that before they die, they must make a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They're in Russia. And after months of planning, they collect what they need, and they begin to walk. After a long day on the road, they come to a village that seems to be deserted. No one's about. No one's going out. There's no noise, nothing. And seeing a small hut, they look into the hut, and they see what's happened. They enter its darkness, and they smell death. As their eyes adjust to the lack of light, they see bodies on beds. With trepidation, they get closer, and they see that people are still alive, but barely. Elisha wants to stay and help. He encourages his companion to go, go beyond the village. He says, you go on, and I'll catch up with you. But as Elisha opens doors and windows and offers them food and drink, he begins to see their needs are much more complex than he first imagined. And then it's not only them, but the whole village that's suffering. So he finds his friend and he tells Ephraim, he says, I, I need to stay longer. I want to stay longer. But you go on. You go on to the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And I will find you. So one man stays in the village, helping the villagers find their way again to happiness and health. Never going on to Jerusalem, actually. Eventually returning home. The other man makes his way to Jerusalem. He keeps waiting for his friend who never comes. So before long, he returns home to Russia, again walking across a continent. At one point along the way, he comes to a village that seems strangely familiar, but totally different. And then he realizes this is where he left his friend. But everything seems very different now. Men and women, old and young, are busy at work and play. Animals are healthy. The crops are growing. And he asks, he says, what happened here? In simple innocence, the villagers explain, there was a man who stopped along the way. He served us. He gave us back our life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.